Amen. You can grab a seat. Thank you for, for singing this morning. We do start a brand new series, and the series is called I've Done That. And I hope that that little simple phrase could be um, something that we all say at some point this month. Um, you're going to hear from all four of your pastors at Reachway this month, uh, starting off with me. Next week will be Ty, my wife, and then Pastor Cassie and Pastor Michael. You're going to be hearing from all four of your pastors. All four of your pastors are going to be sharing a different story that uh, kind of that happened in their life, translating into something we are reading in Scripture. And you're going to hear all four of your pastors say, I've done that. But this is what we're hoping is that we're all able to say that in some regard because this is what we believe to be true about God, uh, the one that we're in the presence of right now, is that he desires to make all things new in our lives. Uh, now, sometimes when we read a passage of scripture like that, we put emphasis on different words depending on what you're talking about. Sometimes when we read the passage, uh, behold, I'm making all things new, sometimes we go to the word new and we say, I'm making all things new. But this month, we're saying when God says, behold, I'm making all things new, that we're going to kind of put the emphasis on all. And I think we can do that because we're talking about God using our past and finding power in our past, um, not so that we run from it, bury it down, um, make a resolution or a goal to kind of say, well, that, that never happened because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct that. No, what we're going to say is there is power in all of our stories and that he does indeed desire to make all things new in our lives, even the things that we might regret from our pasts. So we're going to be spending this whole month saying, I've done that, because we believe that there's power in saying, yeah, I've done that, but God is making that new in my life, and he's using that storyline in my life to uh, redeem me, uh, make me uh, a, an even better person following Christ, um, believing that there's an even fuller life ahead of us. So um, that's kind of our focus as we enter into this series what I'd like to do is I'd like to tell you two stories. The first story is going to come from the scriptures. The second story is going to be one about me, and then we're going to try to work those two storylines together and see where we end up. <laughs> but if you'd like to follow along with us in the scriptures, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one uh, by your feet in that row. And you can follow along with us on page 1,546. 1,546. We are going to be reading a story. If you're familiar with the scriptures at all, then you might be familiar with this story. Um, it's captioned, Jesus anointed at Bethany. Um, we're going to read the story, talk about it, and then see how that can weave into maybe our story today. So follow along with me. Uh, words will also be on the screen. Matthew 26, starting at verse 6. Let's read this together. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head 
as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. (laughs) I like that word. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money could have been given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And look at us reading it today, (laughs) thousands of years later, right? So I want to talk about a couple of little bullet points as we figure out what's actually going on here to kind of help us frame the story. Uh, The first is that this scene is happening a week out from Jesus's death on the cross. Um, We are entering into Passover week in this period of time. And as the storyline goes, Jesus is about six or seven or eight days away from being crucified on the cross. Um, we know this, um, and, and this makes sense for us a little bit more, is because Jesus, you might have caught this, says, she's preparing me for burial. Now, this was even a mystery when Jesus says that still to the disciples. Up until this point, Jesus has told the disciples a few different times, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to leave you, and they still weren't piecing it all together. Uh, but here Jesus says, once again, she's actually preparing me for burial, Uh, which would have been a common thing to do. When it comes to Jesus's company, this is very interesting. Um, We learn about Jesus's company when this story is accounted for in the Gospel of John. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of our New Testament, and they all account for the life and ministry of Jesus. And sometimes some of the Gospels have the same story accounted for. Sometimes we only find one. Uh, Sometimes they're in all four or or three of them. And and this story of Jesus being anointed is also found in John chapter 12. When we read John chapter 12, we learn of the company that Jesus is with, including Mary and Martha. Um, If you're familiar at all with Mary and Martha, there's a group of sisters, and there's, there's a story in our scriptures of Mary and Martha, two sisters, and one of them is much more of a social person around the house, and one of them is much more of a worker bee. And one gets mad at the other and says, well, she should be working too, and different things like that. And there's lessons to be learned there. But regardless of those lessons, Jesus is with them because they were tight, like they were a good family. And and here is why Jesus was so close to Mary and Martha is because Mary and Martha had a brother. And you might know him by the name Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, siblings. Jesus raises one from the dead. And you could imagine the affection that the sisters would have for this man who gave our brother second life, right? And so this kind of makes more and more sense as we dig into the details of why 
she would pour perfume on his head and, and honor him in such a great way. And then what we also learn in between the Matthew passage and the John passage is that the perfume that was used to anoint Jesus was worth a year's wages. Okay, so you don't need to tell me what your salary is or what your annual income is, but imagine putting that all together and just kind of dumping it out. <laughs> yeah, but that's what's happening in this story. That's what's happening. So I want to hold this story up against another story, a story of scripture up against a story from, from my life. And I might have shared this with some of you before, but if there was one week that would be the week that I'm probably going to look back on for the rest of my life is a week in March in the year 2012. I was able to journey to the country of Haiti on a mission trip with some uh, classmates of mine from Olivet Nazarene University, which is where I went to college. And we spent our spring break going to Haiti for a mission trip. And Haiti, because of natural disaster after natural disaster, and then having to rebuild, and then another natural disaster, you can imagine that storyline just kind of results in a deep amount of poverty. So Haiti's kind of known to be one of the poorest countries on the planet Earth because of natural disasters, no doing of their own. It's not like any of them are just kind of giving up. It's, it's because they, they get rocked by earthquakes and, and all these different types of weather, and it's hard to keep up with that. And during this week, um, a, a lot of firsts for me, um, first time being out of North America, personally. Uh, first time experiencing that level of poverty. Um, it could be quite easy to look at me, even some of the neighborhoods in our city and say, man, there's a lot, a lot of hurts that are taking place there. And there are. Times that by a hundred. hundred times over um, in Haiti. First time I had been exposed to such poverty. And if you get into those kinds of circles, it can really mess with you. <laughs> for the good and for the bad, I, I think for the good, it really, really opened my eyes to parts of the world that I just didn't know were there. Elements of what it means to be a human and what it means to be alive on this planet. I just didn't know that those things existed. You don't know until you know, until you see, until you touch and meet people and, and even smell the smells. Um, you just don't. No. And during this week, God really opened my eyes and then at the same exact time was inviting me in to ministry to kind of change my dream from what I wanted my career to be to perhaps what maybe a little bit more that he was inviting me into. And it was quite a week as well to, to put dreams aside and and not so much receive a new dream, but just to be open to something else, right? Because sometimes that's all it, all it takes is for us to get out of our little tunnel <laughs> to see that there's other things going on, to see that there's other things for us to do. And then I came back, came back, for, came back from Haiti to finish off that spring semester of what was my junior year at Olivet. Um, and this is what my general reaction was for a good 
long while was an absolute disgust with American consumerism. <laughs> Can you blame me, right? Just an absolute disgust of the amount of stuff that we had, the amount of stuff that we desired and wanted. And if you were a friend of mine at this period of time, March 2012, probably for the rest of 2012, and if you went to Starbucks every day, you would have heard from me. And if you were wearing that brand of <laughs> pants or shoes or clothes or whatever, you would have heard from me. Came back from Haiti, disgusted with my country, disgusted with my peers. And where does that eventually land you? Disgusted with yourself. Because this is what I looked in, a closet, just like yours. Um, probably my shoe collection probably could have rivaled some of you ladies out there. Um, I was a sneakerhead. Uh, sneakerhead is someone who just buys up shoes in high school. I mowed lawns, got some cash, and spent it, right? And so I carry these relics into college, and I go into this spree of selling and donating any and all things that I possibly could. Um, I become a thrift store shopper, right? Um, not out of necessity, and that, that was the weird thing. Some people have to do that. I just did it because I was angry. <laughs> I was a little frustrated, rallying against expensive coffees. and I mean, that's how petty. That's how petty it was, right? Now, why do I share that story? Maybe you've already made the connection. I would have been the disciple saying, what a waste of perfume. What a waste of resources. What, what a waste of something that could be worth so much more for someone else. Because this is what I was doing on the backside of, of selling clothing and donating these things is I was much more aware and awakened to some of the needs that existed in other countries and other lands. And you, your eyes get open to new possibilities and, and it kind of changes things. But I would have absolutely been the disciple who said, what a waste. So I, I look at this passage and, and I say, without any hesitation, I have done that. <laughs> I have been the one that has looked at how someone else used what they had for whatever they wanted to do in that time, and I have scoffed. And I have snuffed my nose, and I have ridiculed, and I have condemned. I have absolutely done that. And this is what I've learned since then, over the last six years. This is what I've learned even in the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing to share these stories with you about how God does want to make all things new, about how Jesus can use our stories. And I also think what Jesus perhaps is wanting to show us this morning as we consider this story is this. Sometimes doing well-intended good things can hinder our participation in better things. We're going to explain this. But this is what I mean is, is I think on the surface, I don't know if anyone in this room necessarily faults the disciples for, for having the thought that they had. 
Um, I, I don't think that their suggestion was bad at all. In fact, I think it was a good idea. Go to my own story. Nothing wrong with trying to save a few dollars. Nothing wrong with trying to sell a few possessions that you probably don't need. Nothing wrong with making perhaps some more aware decisions and moves with your finances. That's it's very good. It's a good thing to do. In his response to the disciples, however, Jesus opens up the box, the box that I would like to call the box of conventional wisdom. And inside of the box of conventional wisdom is ways of thinking, ways of doing that we have all thought of before. Absolutely conventional wisdom, for um, example, for you to wear a seatbelt, because you might uh, need it. <laughs> conventional wisdom to, I don't know, I was talking to someone earlier, and conventional wisdom of closing your car doors and locking them, because you never know who's going to sneak in and grab something, right? They're just things that we do without even thinking about it, because it's conventional wisdom. What Jesus does in this story is he opens up the conventional wisdom of things like economics, things like value, things like worth. Because what he doesn't say to the disciples is, fellas, that's a stupid idea. Because it wasn't. It wasn't a dumb idea. It was a very, very fair idea. But if you're familiar with the stories of Jesus at all, you might have struggled with something he is really hard to pin down. You, you can read one passage of, because let's, let's think about this for a minute. We are reading a passage of scripture where on the surface, Jesus Christ says, there's actually something different that could happen here rather than just ministering to the poor. His entire ministry, it seems, is about the poor, the orphaned, the widowed. And yet, in this brief scene of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, hold on, there's something else that might take more of an importance even in this brief moment. And it would be worth investigating of what is actually going on here. So I want to say that good things lead us to better things. Sometimes, sometimes good, moral, just, sound, conventional things can get in the way of even better things that Jesus opens up for us. He opens up this box of conventional wisdom. And in this same movement of our awareness of good things and better things, we move from a good life to what we talk about living life to the fullest. Now, sometimes a full life sometimes looks not as good as a good life, but it's a full one. It's where we experience everything that life has to offer. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about four good things, four really, really good things, but talk about how those good things move to even better things. And, and hopefully this kind of helps us piece together what we're going to talk about. But the first good thing that we see happening in this story is this idea of calculation, or this idea of, of, of calculating what could be done in light of what is to come or, or what could be leveraged for something greater. I, I, I put a reference here. If you're, if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to maybe read this story later this week. But in Luke chapter 14, 
um, Jesus is talking about what it means to be a disciple. Um, and if you're familiar with the passage, Jesus says, um, he, he kind of relates to two ideas of life. When talking about what it means to follow Jesus, he says something to the effect, paraphrased, if a builder is going to build a tower, he needs to count the costs. He needs to make sure that he has enough financing to finish it, right? Uh, if, if a builder's going to start going to build a house, you, half a house isn't worth a lot. <laughs> it must be completed in order for that really to be worth anything. And what Jesus does in that particular situation when he's talking about what it means to be a disciple is, yeah, count the cost. Measure what this is going to cost you. Calculation, absolutely. Calculate. The disciples calculated using the perfume to anoint Jesus versus what it could have done in maybe a rainy day down the road, right? But this is what we're seeing in this story. This is the movement that is made, is that what's even better than calculation is the present. What's even better than calculating in this moment in time is the present. Matthew 26, the story we just read, verse 11. Jesus says a sentence that has messed with me since I first read it. The poor you will always have but you will not always have me. Jesus actually isn't making this up. Uh, Jesus is referencing a passage in Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 5. Deuteronomy is the fifth book um, in the entire scripture. It's in the Old Testament, where God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says, there are always going to be poor people all over the world. What you should be worried about is the poor in your land, in your neighborhood, in, in your tribe. So Jesus is drawing back on that, saying, the poor you will always have, but you won't always have me. I think this is what Jesus is saying here, is there are always going to be things to do and needs to meet. However, there are some opportunities that do not repeat themselves. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying there is always going to be the thing that can knock you off course from the present moment. There's always going to be something that you can say, yeah, I think this would be a good thing to help out, but you never know what could come later. Jesus is saying that when it comes to, in this case, himself and uh, poor people or the poor among them. Jesus talks about how a present opportunity acted upon, the language that Jesus uses is a beautiful thing. Jesus says she has done a beautiful thing. The one whose entire ministry is staked on bringing hope to the poor says that a year's worth of salary poured on his head is a beautiful thing, not a wasteful thing, not a foolish thing, not an impulse decision that went awry. No, was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I want to talk about a second good thing, and that would be shrewdness. If you're not familiar with the word shrewd or shrewdness, it would be, be crafty or wise or, or cunning, something like that. In Luke chapter 16, 
Jesus tells a story of a manager of employees. It's a very, very abstract story, and there's a lot going on there, and we're not going to get into most of it now. But what is a very complex and thick parable or story that Jesus is telling? Jesus appears to be speaking positively about a shrewd navigation of life. He seems to be speaking positively of smart decisions and, and different moves that someone would have throughout life. And it would, of course, be a positively shrewd thing for the disciples to leverage the perfume for charity, right? I mean, that, that's a good thing. It makes sense for that perfume to be leveraged for, for something much better. But this is the better move that Jesus makes. uh, Shrewdness is good. You know what's better is generosity. And this is what Jesus is showing us here, is what is even better than calculation is the present moment. What's even better than shrewdness is generosity. We read of how generous this act was when Jesus says this was a beautiful thing that she did, And we learn that it's worth a year's worth of wages. Jesus says that, once again, on the surface, and I'm relating to this very first, where we could easily say, what a waste. What a waste of resources. And I was the one, I've done that, who has said that. But what was even better in those moments where I've looked at someone else and I've said, that's such a waste of money, is what I have missed is this idea of generosity. This woman, who uh, the Gospel of John would argue is Mary, Mary was the one who, who poured the perfume out. This woman gave the greatest possible gift that she ever could have given. A year's worth of wages. But she did it in order to honor and bless someone else, and that was Jesus. So the good shrewdness moves to something even better, and that is generosity. Calculation moves to the present. Shrewdness moves to generosity. The third good thing that I want to talk about this morning is this idea of sacrifice. This idea of sacrifice. This one and the next one are tough. (laughs) On the surface, it would be extremely noble for the perfume to be sacrificed. This is what we mean by sacrificed is used for something other than what it was designed for. Of course, perfume, cologne, whatever, is used to help us smell good and, you know, work out those things. (laughs) That's why we use it. Um, To sacrifice that perfume would be to say, don't use it for its direct intended purpose. Don't use it to help make you smell good, but sell it. Treat it as a a good that can be used for something else in order to get some money. We kind of get into this pawn shop life, right, where it's not worth what it's actually designed for. It's worth more or less when it comes to actual money. The money can be used for something better, to sacrifice something. Now, on the surface... You read a passage in Romans where it says, offer your your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
I'm not saying that this is super easy cut and dry, but we are learning some things from this particular story where sacrifice moves to mercy, where there's a move that is made. Because here is a direct quote from Jesus, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. Jesus is speaking to a group of people that were just so sure of the law at the time that they were just laser-focused, locked into conventional wisdom when it came to religion and morality and things like that. And Jesus looks at this group, and he gives another phrase that messes with me. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So then we have to deal with that and wrestle with that. These are what those, those two words mean, and, and this is what Jesus is saying. When we talk about sacrifice, there is, if, if someone is sacrificing something, there is very much an awareness of me. If, if I am sacrificing, for example, this perfume, if I were to make the decision to use this perfume for something other than what it was designed for, then there's a, bare, there's a very big focus on me saying that I need to make this decision where I need to give this thing up and I am at a loss and I'm losing something and I'm so humble and yet at the same exact time when you say I'm so humble, you're so prideful and then you're saying that I'm, that I'm giving this up, right? That's what sacrifice is. But when that moves to mercy, Mercy is a laser focus on the other person. And you just have moved to a place where you're just not concerned at all with the well-being of yourself. That you're so confident in where you are in your walk with God that you are just locked in, how can I help others? What could I do for someone else? That is mercy. You may have heard, be familiar with the phrase, acts of mercy. These acts of just radical love and, and help given to someone else. And so when Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, what Jesus is really saying is, I desire for you to be so much more mindful of other people Trusting that I, God, am mindful of you, that you can afford to be mindful of someone else. You see, we're all in someone's mind. The move that Jesus wants us all to make is, Jesus is assuring us time and time again, you are my child, I am mindful of you. Now, I would like you, knowing that I am mindful of you, to go be mindful of other people who are not yet mindful of the fact that I am mindful of them. You see that? Maybe it would be more helpful for me to draw that one day. Yeah. Yeah. So while sacrifice can on the surface be a very good and noble and moral thing, that moves down to mercy. Yeah. Calculation is better in the present. Shrewdness moves to generosity. Sacrifice moves to mercy. Here's the toughest one. A very good thing is righteousness. Righteousness is good. You can't read Paul's letters to the different churches in the New Testament and not read about righteousness. 
You can't read half of Genesis and read about Father Abraham and his many sons <laughs> and the righteousness of Abraham and how obedient and righteous that Abraham was in God's call to him. This is a tough one because righteousness is, is morality and righteousness is just and righteousness is walking the straight line the narrow path. And we have great examples set for us in Scripture, including Abraham. But there's a couple interesting cautions that we find when we consider the words of both Jesus and Paul. The first caution when we're talking about righteousness is what's taking place in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with just Jesus on a mountainside gathered around, and he is just laying out how he is kind of rewriting and reconfiguring the Ten Commandments and the conventional wisdom around the old law and things like that. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus presents a caution and he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the people that, if you're familiar at all with this group of people, that just had it worked out, right? I mean, they, they knew the law, they obeyed the law, and they were just so laser-focused on the law and rigid. And Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that is not even righteous enough, now, Sermon on the Mount happening at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we don't exactly know what he is saying at that moment in time because the, the rest of his life hasn't really played out yet. We'll get to how that story ends in just a few seconds, but there's another caution that we read. That comes from Romans chapter 10. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome where Paul himself says that Jesus Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. That there is a righteous law that anyone can follow. The Pharisees were super good at it. That there was an actual law, like a law book, a rule book. And what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10 is the rule book is being replaced by an actual person. That the rule book is being replaced by God. That, that the rule book is being replaced by a God that is living and active and perfect. And so Paul says that the rigid law of righteousness can actually become a stumbling block to get in the way of where righteousness moves to, and that is love. Righteousness, good. Love, better. And I would argue, best. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love God, love others. Paul reminds us that righteousness ends and is complete in the law of Christ and the person of Christ. And the reason that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is able to say that your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees is because when Jesus' life eventually ends in a brief moment on the cross and then begins again when he raises from death is that love is the answer, not the rule book, not the law book. And that love is very active, and love moves us. 
Jesus says in this story, the story of the woman pouring the perfume on him, that this is the gospel, is that love wins every single time. Now, Jesus talks about why we are going to talk about Mary till the end of time. Jesus says it. We just read it earlier. As long as the good news of Jesus Christ is preached, we're going to talk about Mary dumping that perfume on my head. <laughs> why? Because it was a huge waste? No. You know how many things have been wasted in our world history? We don't talk about those today a lot. Um, why would we talk about this scene for the rest of time? Is because perhaps... This was one of the most profound things that someone has ever done for someone else, short of death. The extravagant love, the extravagant generosity, the extravagant mercy that Mary shows Jesus in this act, that is why we talk about this today. So we're talking about the series. I've done that. Talked a little bit about myself. We've got a story here. We talked about these big moves a lot at you this morning, I would really love to sum it up and say this, because perhaps you may not have heard anything that I've said and, uh, and said, oh, I, I resonate on, on a financial level, but I want you to know there's so much more than finances going on here. This is how I want to sum all of this up, is that there is no better moment than right now to go all in. That's what we're, that's what we're reading here. And you might recognize that language, all in. It's one of our values here at Reachway Church. We believe that every single person has something to offer. It doesn't matter where they come from. doesn't matter their present, current circumstances. That every single person has something to offer. And so we should all be encouraged to give whatever we can, whatever we have, in order to see people live life to the fullest. There's no better moment than right now to go all in. And I would contend that this statement is true always. <laughs> so no better the moment than right now here at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. No, I would say the same would be true tomorrow. I would say the same would be true anytime. Is because there's just something about the present moment, the present opportunity that we're given when we go on in life. Yes, of course, there is something that we could look to and say, but what if that happens? Or what if I could help that? but I could do this. I think what we learn here is that, man, there is just something about meeting a need in the present. There is just something about being generous, being merciful, and loving. So, I've done that. Maybe you resonate with this, um, this particular message this morning. At the very least, this is what I hope happens for all of us at some point over the next month, as you hear from your, your other pastors. At some point in this series, I hope that maybe you don't resonate with any of the four messages that you will hear. But this is what I want you to know, above anything else, is that the thing that you just cannot get over from your past the grace of God is sufficient to make that new. And you don't have to work towards burying that. 
And you don't have to make goal after goal, and you don't have to put on persona after persona, mask upon mask, in order to try and forget what has happened. It is an option available to you, and on the surface, it's a very good option. But I want you to know that there is something better. There is something better. There is something powerful about saying, yeah, you know what? It happened 20 years ago, but I did it, and it happened, and now I'm ready to see how God can make that new. Think of it this way. Is, it is very difficult, never going to say it's impossible, but it's very difficult for God to make something new if you don't first give it to him. The alternative, and this is why we don't say impossible, is if you've ever heard the word refinery or refining, oftentimes we use that when we're talking about uh, uh, manipulating gold or melt, melting down certain elements that are just rock solid, but somehow, some way, we are able to change them, like we're able to cut diamonds. We're able to shape and mold gold and steel and things like that. Refining is the process of heating up and melting and just putting so much force and energy into a change, and then we're able to change it. That happens to us as people now and again. Is sometimes we get caught in this moment where you feel like you just, you had it right, and you feel like you're on the right path, and then thing after thing after thing after thing in life reminds you that maybe you're wrong, and it hurts, and we don't like it, and then we get into this cycle of just trying to satisfy the hurt and satisfy the, the need and and temporary band-aids and all of this stuff, that's actually refinery. We can open ourselves up to it. I would say, avoid that if you can. <laughs> Just give it. Give it up. So in a moment, we're going to receive communion. Um, 